Hello, you are now listening to Let's Talk Trees, a podcast brought to you by C4N Ikraf with me, Anggi Cahyaningtias. The International Day of Mangrove is just around the corner, and in the last episode, we have discussed the polemic between mangrove and aquaculture. This week, we are still going to talk about this unique ecosystem, but this time we will highlight mangrove as the protector of the coastal zone. And for that, I have here with me not one, not two, but three guests. The first one is Stephen Patton, Director of Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute's Physical Monitoring Program that is located in the Republic of Panama. Welcome to our podcast, Steve. Thank you very much for this opportunity. So you have 30 years of experience monitoring the climate of Panama, and in the last decade, you are involved in the assessment of its wetlands, yeah? Yes, that's true. I've been uh, involved in the Smithsonian's long-term monitoring program, particularly in the climate, but now recently I've also gotten involved in monitoring mangroves. Okay, that's a very important work that you do. Our next guest is Temilola Fatoyinbo from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. She is a research physical scientist in the Biospheric Sciences Laboratory. Thanks for joining us, Lola. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yes, I've been working on using satellite instruments to monitor mangrove forests all around the world. And I'm really interested in working on characterizing their vulnerability and the response of mangrove ecosystems to disturbances from both land use and climate change. Thank you for making time to be the guest in our podcast. I'm very happy to have you here. Um, and then, the last but not least, we are also joined by Rosa Roman Cuesta, C4 scientist at Climate Change and Energy Team. She is a tropical forest ecologist with more than 20 years of experience. Rosa Maria is part of the SWAMP program, and now she also leads the Corscam Paribas project. Uh, these initiatives focus on the response and resilience of mangroves to extreme events such as hurricanes, droughts, floods in the Caribbean, and the policy implication that derive from it. So Rosa, the topic that we are going to discuss today is part of big collaboration with a lot of regional partners. Would you like to address them so we know a little bit about that? Uh, thank you, Angie. Yes, that would be wonderful. I'm very grateful for having NASA and uh, Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute here with me, but I definitely would like to acknowledge the work that it's been done by other regional partners um, on understanding how coastal and marine ecosystems are responding to extreme events. And, and I think we are a living example of the SDG 17 of partnerships and a good example of how together we definitely move forward um, in a much more fun way. So. Great to have you all here. Thank you, Angi. Thank you. It's, it's really good to see this big collaboration among so many actors. Now that we have got to know our guests better, it's time to start our main discussion. I'll go first to Steve. Um, in the last episode, our guest Daniel Murdiarso calls for a moratorium in mangrove deforestation. So he said that this ecosystem is often marginalized and therefore converted in the names of development and livelihood. So my question to you, Steve, uh, why mangrove and why now? Well, I think we should always have been talking about mangroves. Difference right now is that we've learned so much more about mangroves and their importance, not only to the general environment, but to humans as well, that we've really begun a discussion about why these different ecosystems that make up the, the mangroves are really important and should be conserved. That the mangroves are an incredibly special ecosystem. 
in the tropics, for example, we've got tens of thousands of species of plants that live in, in the tropics. But when you look at the mangroves, there are only a couple dozen species that have managed to deal with the very unique conditions of the fringe area between the coasts and the oceans. They have to deal with the, the salt water, they have to deal with the fresh water, they have to deal with the heat. There's a whole bunch of things that make it very special to being mangroves. And these mangroves, because they're in this interface between the land and the ocean, form an incredibly important buffer between those two ecosystems. And as we, we study these mangroves more and more, we realize that their importance for biodiversity, their importance for ecosystem services, uh, those things that they do that aid us, for example, storing carbon in the soil, they're much more efficient storing carbon in the soil than the terrestrial forest. They're incredibly important for fisheries because there are many, many species of economically important fish that have part of their life cycle in and around the mangroves. So again, as we learn more and more about the mangroves, more we realize that they need to be conserved. Thank you, Steve. Rosa, do you want to add to that? Yes, thank you. Uh, the, the mangroves ecosystems, because they are amphibious between the land and the ocean, they are also threatened by both uh, sides. They have all the threats coming from increased disturbances from the ocean, particularly in the form of storms and coastal erosion and sea level rise, uh, which is also another ecosystem service that they provide by creating and accumulating sediments that they, they, they uh, able some of these coastal societies to still thrive um, by, by not being flooded by the ocean. But then at the same time, they also get uh, the threats from, from the land. And, uh, in this line of action, uh, we are having a lot of human disturbances of mangroves, even though today we're going to talk about the climatic role and their effects on mangroves. The, the real driver of mangrove disappearance are humans, and particularly in the Caribbean, where touristic um, sector has such a huge role. So uh, mangroves are extremely um, specialized, as, as Steve was saying, but at the same time, time extremely fragile. A change of conditions of their hydrological conditions will kill them. So they can survive salinity, they can survive storms, they can survive um, different recovery phases from human damage, but then change a bit their ecological conditions, the, the tides of the ocean or the fresh water coming into them and they don't survive. Mm-hmm. So they are strong yet fragile at the same time, yeah? Um, Lola? Um. I, I completely agree with what both Rosa and Steve have said. And, and one other point is that for many, many years, mangroves have been thought of as kind of as wastelands of areas. This is the, it's the swamp, it's dirty, it's an area that is not very pretty to look at. And so um, they have really suffered and been um, deforested and destroyed over many, many years. And we actually estimate that the deforestation rate of mangroves over the past 50 years has been, you know, we've lost about 50% of our mangroves worldwide. And this, of course, has a huge effect on the ecosystem services that they provide. This is something that we've been working on using satellite data to better understand, you know, how mangroves are being lost and where. And what we're seeing is that, you know, in the Caribbean, just as Rosa mentioned, a lot of the tourist infrastructure has been built 
um, you know, on the back in some ways of mangroves because because they are this amphibious um, ecosystem, they are also in the locations where it's ideal to put a tourist installation. And so, um, you know, it's really important for us to get a better understanding and to continue monitoring mangroves and to get a better understanding of what their ecosystem services are, because, you know, they really provide a lot of them, including, you know, um, water filtration, um, helping with um, protecting the coast from sea level rise and from erosion. Thank you, Lola. Uh, my next question is for Rosa. You said that mangrove is like an amphibian ecosystem and is the forefront of fighting climate change. My question is, we see now that extreme weather such as hurricanes happen more frequently and intense. Uh, how does mangrove work at the front line? Um, yes, um, as, as Lola was mentioning, we're moving hopefully a bit forward uh, from uh, mangroves and wetlands or wastelands towards the utilitarian role that they play for, for protecting the coastline. This is right now the one that is being more highlighted just because, as you mentioned, particularly in the Caribbean, the um, recurrence and the intensity of extreme events, not only hurricanes, but, but also floods and uh, droughts is, is increasing. And actually the Caribbean is an interesting sentinel region of this planet because there is um, scientific agreement that uh, starting from the 80s, there is certainly an increased rate of, of both hurricanes. Um, we have multiplied by two the intensity of category three hurricanes uh, in the region since the 80s. Then we also have a very strong El Nino every time more recurrent as well. We have had 13 El Nino since the 1980s. And then the effects of floods and oceanic heat with all the problems that are affecting the reef. So we, we are considering a region that is suffering from these increased extreme events, but at the same time has extraordinary diversity. And also it is a connecting region between northern and southern hemispheres. So that and then from the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. So the problem that we are having now in the Caribbean, it's a combination of humans and climate. So as we have been mentioning, there is a lot of touristic infrastructure developed over mangroves. So whatever happens in the Caribbean and then a lot of coastal societies also living um, on, on the coast that makes it much more uh, vulnerable and exposed to increased climate hazards. But the situation in terms of numbers is that um, the mean amount of hurricanes or tropical storms, sorry, which is uh, less uh, strong than, than a hurricane in terms of wind speeds, um, the mean values for tropical storms and hurricanes in the Caribbean is around um, 12 tropical storms, six hurricanes, and two or three uh, category three uh, hurricanes, which are these large, powerful, and, and harmful hurricanes at uh, sustained speeds of 119 kilometers per hour. That is the mean. But then we look at what has happened in 2017, which was a hyperactivity uh, uh, hurricane session, which means that it was high above this mean, but also high above the accumulated cyclone energy, which is a measure of, of how strong these uh, hurricane seasons are. So in 2017, which we all remember very well for the Harvey, Irma and Maria hurricanes, uh, we had 17 uh, tropical storms instead of 12. We had 10 hurricanes instead of six, and then we had six major hurricanes instead of the mean of two or three. And in 2020, what we are forecasting is that uh, because the ocean 
heat has been above normal for already a long amount of months, as it already happened in 2017. And this is the key, Angie. Hurricanes only form when the ocean temperature is above 27 degrees Celsius. So uh, if you have accumulated uh, ocean temperatures for a long time, then you are calling for trouble. In terms of activity, 2020 is foreseen to be very um, active. There are even more storms predicted than in 2017, which was extremely harmful, uh, harmful season. So we have 19 to 20 tropical storms forecasted in the region. The season started in June and we already are now in number six, and the Yucatan coast has been severely flooded because of the last um, of the last storm. Then we are forecasting 10 hurricanes instead of the mean of six, and then we are forecasting six major hurricanes above category three instead of the mean of three. So depending on where these pathways of hurricanes take us, we are going to have very hectic year in terms of um, risk reduction and risk programs and, and um, civil uh, society alerts on, on these activities. And of course, mangroves play a role. There's been a lot of hydrological modeling on how mangroves, but not only mangroves, also the seagrass and the reefs, they all um, stop or they don't stop but they reduce the energy of the of the storm surges of the of the um of the ocean waves that reach the coast and therefore they help reduce the um, amount of damage that coastal societies suffer and this has been hydrologically um modeled that uh, there is a significant difference between having uh, green infrastructure um, reducing the energy that then reaches the coast. So having mangroves is now becoming fundamental for risk reduction strategies. And one of our calls is that whenever we have funding coming for reconstruction and for aid after these extreme events, we would really like to make a call to use nature-based solutions and to use green infrastructure as part of the risk reduction policies. And this is not happening right now, Angie. And uh, we know our colleagues from TNC uh, working with the Red Cross to incorporate this uh, ecosystem health of mangroves and reefs as a way to participate in risk reduction policies. Thank you, Rosa. So the warmer the ocean temperature means more hurricane or more extreme uh, events. Lola, do you have anything to add from your work? Sure. So um, what we've been working on and what we've been working on with Rosa and Steve also is is trying to better understand the effect that hurricanes have on mangroves now. So mangroves have been um, living and surviving hurricanes for many hundreds of years. But what we're seeing is that because of these changes in the number of hurricanes and the intensity of hurricanes and also the intensity of tropical storms in general, um, there have been some changes in how mangroves are able to react to them. So naturally, there are two main um, functions of, uh, of tropical storms and hurricanes that affect mangroves. There's very high winds. Um, these high winds result in defoliation. You may have snapped trees, branches that fall and blown over trees. And then you also have strong storm surges. Um, these, are, these storm surges is what actually gets buffered by mangroves naturally because they, they have these amazing root systems and their trunks. Um, that are able to buffer uh, strong storm surges and tidal waves. But this can also lead to some ponding inland, and that might sometimes have an effect on mangroves by resulting in hypersalinization and can also in some ways affect mangroves. 
But naturally, mangroves have really been able to withstand um, these two main factors of hurricanes that affect them, either by moving or by migrating to other areas if they've been really damaged by hurricanes in one area, um, or by simply you know, re-sprouting and continuing to grow. But what we're seeing is that when mangroves are really stressed, um, either because of you know, freshwater diversion or because they can't actually migrate like they used to because maybe there's a road built where they, used to, where they would like to migrate or there's a building, they are not able to withstand as they used to. And so that's, what, that's one of the effects that we're studying and that's something that we're seeing across the world and also especially in the Caribbean where you have you know, this increased number of tropical storms. That's a very interesting point. I will get back to that. But now, uh, Steve? I would just like to add one other element to this. And it's that mangroves evolved to deal with the conditions that they live in. So that they've evolved to tolerate storms because throughout their e ecological history, they've been subject to storms. They've been subject to changes in sea level. But what is different now is the rate of change, especially global sea rise. The sea level rise in, in the past has been as much as five, 10, even 20 meters, but these changes have occurred over tens of thousands of years. And what we're seeing now are rates of change that instead of tens of thousands of years are happening at the rate of decades. So the mangroves simply don't have the capacity to evolve, to, to migrate uphill even if there were space available to migrate to. And so that's what's really putting them under pressure. It's this rate of change, not just the phenomenon themselves. Andy, I would also Thank like to add you. something. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, sure, please. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yes, um, I'd like to echo what uh, Lola was mentioning and, and also what Steve was mentioning about um, mangroves in the Caribbean definitely have been uh, standing and, and recovering from, from hurricanes for, for centuries. Um, and uh, one way of, of recovering that then is also changing their initial conditions is that they are changing their structures. So whenever the, the regime of, of hurricanes or disturbances in general is, is too large, then they change their structure and Lola was showing us beautiful examples of how Western African mangroves that they don't suffer from storms are, are huge trees, uh, tall as 30 meters, right? While in the Caribbean, you barely have structures that are above 15 meters, and that's rare. And, and that is particularly a particular uh, response to adaptation to, to this hurricane regime. But as, as Steve was mentioning, and uh, they, they definitely are extremely resilient. They do have the ecological capacity to recover, even if in some places there is a complete uh, change of conditions, given enough time, they will recover. And, and that also makes the definition of resilience a bit difficult because resilience is time dependent. But in general, um, resilience means recovering towards uh, recovering uh, and, and, and reaching the first initial conditions. And in a forest, that could mean um, structural-wise, uh, functional-wise, or composition-wise. And because we are focusing on ecosystem services, for us talking about resilience means, in this discussion in particular, would mean recovering the ecosystem services that they provided. And in that sense, the the mangroves in the in the Caribbean extremely extremely resilient. They might change the structure, they might become um, smaller and more compact, um, but they still provide all the other ecosystem services that have been described here. I think that is quite important. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. So mangrove have the ability to adapt to different uh, condition, yeah. But now the rates of change is a lot faster, and that's unfortunate. So we've talked about uh, mangrove resilience and ability as a fighter, but how resilient is resilient? I will first ask this question to Lola, and then maybe Steve could add to that. So Lola, time is yours. Sure. So what we're when when we talk about resilience, what we're really trying to answer is you know how well can mangroves recover from a disturbance that happens. But as I mentioned before, mangroves are a really dynamic ecosystem. They might die off in one region and then migrate somewhere else. Um, and so in some ways, it's, it's, it's always kind of a challenge to answer this question of how resilient mangroves are. But what we've seen over time is that because we, are, we as humans are you know, changing the coastline so much, in many areas, the mangroves are not able to rebound as they used to. But this is also really variable. Um, what, what, what our studies have shown is that in some regions, for example, if you have a, a deltaic mangrove, so somewhere where you have um, high freshwater discharge, um, if you have a hurricane come in, that hurricane or that tropical storm will actually bring large amounts of fertilizer, of phosphorus into that system. And then the mangroves might rebound and do really well after, the, after this hurricane. But just a few kilometers downstream, you might have a region where um, the freshwater input or the um, ecology is a little bit different. And so in, that, in those cases, if you have mangroves that are maybe a little bit more stressed uh, originally, they will not be able to um, survive the extreme event of a hurricane. So what we've actually been doing with our satellite data and our airborne campaigns is looking at how we can try to predict the resilience or the vulnerability of a mangrove to extreme events. So we were interested in looking at whether the effect of canopy height, for example, is are areas where you have very tall mangroves versus areas where you might have shorter mangroves. Does that really affect how quickly or how uh, resilient they are? And what we found is that if you look at areas where you have very tall trees, for example, and they get hit by a hurricane, for example, the Florida Everglades, where we had Hurricane Irma that hit in 2007, it went right through um, some of the most tallest mangrove stands. What we found is that even though in those areas, mangroves were snapped, you had a lot of trees that died, those trees were actually able to reflush over time. So we had a lot of uh, regreening quite rapidly. Um, but in other areas that were maybe a little bit more inland, areas that were more um, cut off from other freshwater input, what we found is that even though in those areas, the high wind didn't actually have as much of an effect on the trees, so you didn't have as many downed trees or snapped trees or uprooted trees, what we found there is that because we had a really large storm surge that came in, in, in those areas, you had very high salinity, which, which led to a die-off of those trees. So essentially, you have a, a range of reactions to these extreme events that are very much dependent on the geomorphology, so on the location of your extreme event. So I think that also when we're trying to implement some of our maybe our mitigation efforts or we're trying to better understand how resilient or how vulnerable uh, mangroves are, it's really important to also take a look at 
um, the actual location of these of these mangroves and the actual structure and the geomorphology. And that's something that we can do very well with different types of satellite data. We can monitor mangroves in two dimensions, um, and we can also now monitor mangroves in three dimensions using technologies such as LIDAR or radar data. Thank you. Glad to hear that there is a hope for the future. Yeah, Lola. Um, Steve, uh, do you want to highlight something? Yes, uh, Panama is actually a really good uh, example of how specific location can be really important when it comes to recovery of uh, mangroves. Uh, Panama is a bit of an outlier when it comes to the Caribbean and Central America. We've never had a landfall hurricane in the, the last 140 years. So our mangroves don't have to deal with big storm events. But what we do have to deal with are major oscillations in rainfall and changes in temperature. Panama is an absolute great place to study long-term climate change. We have 140 years of first-rate uh, climate data, which is almost unique in the entire area. So we can really study long-term changes. And what we've seen in the data is that in the last 20 years, we've had eight of the 10 largest storms. We've had the two driest years. and We've had the driest three contiguous years ever in those 140 years. So that really means that we can make statements that the climate is changing here in Panama. And this three driest years, 2014 to 2016, had a major impact on the mangroves in the Bay of Panama. Uh, 2016 ended with the driest year we've ever had, which was related to the big El Nino event in that year. And what we observed in the Bay of Panama was a die-off of tens of thousands of mangrove trees in the area. And we're pretty sure, although we really don't have data to, to be conclusive about it, is that it was probably an extreme salinity event, that it got so dry that the salts concentrated in the soils so much that some of the species just couldn't survive it. So we've got, we, we had these huge areas where up to 80% of the stems died off. Now where the real interesting sort of natural or no natural experiment comes is, one of the most affected areas is a mangrove right on the edge of Panama City. And then there was another one completely away from the city. They were both impacted in the same way but the future of those mangroves is probably going to be very different because the mangroves near the city of Panama are also affected by pollution, huge sedimentation rates, pressure from the city. So the, the long-term resilience of those two mangroves is probably going to be very different because of the different types of post impacts that the mangroves are, are uh, experiencing. We don't know right now the rates of recovery because we haven't been able to overfly the mangroves again because uh, this year I was about two weeks away from doing my normal overflights and they locked down the country because of the pandemic. So we really don't know exactly what has happened since the big die-off in terms of recovery, but I suspect that it's going to be very, very different between the outlying area far from the city and the area close to the city. So th this is the type of things that 
questions that we really don't know because we've never studied them before. There's never been an event like this, at least in Panama. There was a similar event at the same time in Australia. But because this, at least for Panama, is a completely unique situation, we don't know what the consequences of this is going to be, and we really do need to study it. Thanks, Steve. Uh, I hope the situation gets better so we can know the answer to that question uh, soon. Uh, I hope for the best for all of you, and cheers to many more unhealthier mangrove in the future. We, we definitely cheer to that, Andy. I think the opportunity window is here, and I think um, dissemination forums like these are really important to, to raise the visibility of this extremely unique ecosystem. Thank you so much for having us here. I'm really thankful to have you as our guest here. So that's all for today. Uh, thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe on the link provided. See you on the next episode and stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye.